0: You are listening to Sermon Audio from College Creek Church in Annapolis, Maryland. For more information on this local body of believers, visit us online at collegecreekchurch.org or in person every Sunday at 11 a.m. All right, I'm going to start with a reading from the Gospel of John. As you know, we're in a series uh, in the Gospel of John, and we're going to work our way through the book of John. Uh, and so in that spirit, I'm going to speak on this passage, uh, which uh, is centered on the pretty famous um, uh, setting or a passage of uh, the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turns water into wine. Uh, but the story itself doesn't just, uh, in my mind, doesn't just sit alone in and of itself, uh, that it really needs to be um understood in the context of, of, the, of what's been happening in the story so far. You could certainly look or dig into the passage itself uh, and study it. Um, one of the recommendations I would have uh, to you um, would be uh, Tim Keller has a, um, a sermon called uh, uh, Lord of the Wine, I think it's called. Uh, and you can download that on YouTube, and, and you could get more into the, the details of the passage uh, and get a lot of great Old Testament references in there and, and just go deeper into the passage itself. But we're following a linear progression, and so I'm going to sort of stick uh, with that uh, today. And I'm going to begin by reading uh, a section um, that actually Isaac is going to preach in next week. So I was supposed to preach next week, and he was going to be here today and I wish he was. <laughs> so I'm going to read just a portion of uh, what he's going to speak on. I'm not really going to speak much about it, but uh, I do think, again, this to really grasp what's going on at this wedding in Cana, uh, we want to start here with the uh, calling of the disciples. So I'm going to start in chapter 1, beginning in verse uh, 43. And uh, by the way, if you uh, need a Bible, there's Bibles over here. You're free to, free to free to take those Bibles with you. If you don't have one, uh, you can keep it. That's uh, just uh, our gift to you. And uh, the passage from, if you do have one of those Bibles, the passage begins on page 982. Okay? So the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me, On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana, Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to him, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were, some, there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is God's word. In looking at the uh, Gospel of uh, John, we know that the purpose of the book, as we have said in the sermon series, uh, it was written so that we might believe, and in believing, uh, we might receive a quality of life that Jesus offers to us. That's the purpose of uh, the uh, letter itself. And um, I thought that one of the things that might be helpful was to give an example of something that we have an understanding of, or, or we all, we all kind of know of, to get an understanding of, of what John is talking about when he talks about believing. Uh, in uh, 1966, I think the Monkees uh, came out with an album. Uh, I can't remember the title of the album, but on the B side of the album uh, was a song that actually Neil Diamond had written. It was called... Uh, I'm a believer. Uh, some of you, uh, if you do know that, uh, you're really dating yourself. I could see maybe the O'Neils and us and maybe maybe a couple of you other guys might, might know the monkeys. but I think Smash Mouth, who I have no idea who that is, uh, did a remake of the song for the uh, movie Shrek. Uh, So, yeah, I'm a believer. So now you're going to be singing that, which is okay because, uh, you know, if my sermon dims, then that will be good, number one. But number two, it's kind of a common song. So if you hear it in the future, you'll start thinking about the Gospel of John. So I thought it might be a win there. The second second stanza of the song goes as follows. I thought love was more or less a giving thing, but the more I gave, the less I got. What's the use in trying? All you get is pain. When I needed sunshine, I got rain. Then I saw her face. Now I'm a believer. Not a trace of doubt in my mind. I'm in love, I'm a believer. I couldn't leave her if I tried. So the singer here at the beginning uh, of, this, of the song uh, is rather cynical and skeptical about love. I guess he might be jaded, I don't know, but he's got a pretty negative view about love. In a sense, he's saying it really doesn't exist. Then he saw her. We don't know who the her is, but after seeing her, he's transformed. He's transformed so utterly and so completely that he makes the declaration that there's no going back. His life is now utterly changed by the glory of this woman that I guess that he has seen. And that's the kind of transformation that John is getting at. In his Bible, in his book, in his gospel, he uses the verb to believe 98 times. The other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, combined only used the verb tense thirty times that 's less than a third of what uh, John is actually doing uh, in his in his Bible. So this sense of belief in John is utterly important. This is the experience that they went through, and this is what he is telling now that he 's getting older to the next generation. The importance of believing and the uh, The emphasis that in believing, you receive a quality of life. But this believing in the Gospels is much like this song. That's why I thought it was such a great little song. You can believe something on the inside, but transformation comes, at least biblically, from the outside first. It comes from the outside, and then it comes on the inside, and it works itself on the inside to the point where someone is utterly changed to the point where they can't ever look at things the same way again. And that transformation we call oftentimes regeneration or to be born anew, born again. John, if you remember, says born of God. But this comes from the outside. And if you remember in verse 14 in chapter 1, what did, they, what did John, John said? He said, we beheld uh, his glory. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. When I saw her face... I became a believer. When we saw his glory, we became a believer, and we were never the same again. Life wasn't easy for these guys either, was it? It was tough, and yet Jesus drew them in. And so I think that that's really what the task is here at the beginning of uh, this passage, is seeing how Jesus first calls his disciples, then he draws them in. His, His task in my mind is, how do I convert believers into disciples? Okay, So they've seen him and they have this great expectation and they're falling in love with him, but they have no idea what they're falling in love with. In 1977, I was in eighth grade. And my father took uh, me and a friend down to the University of Virginia to see a national championship college lacrosse game. And it was uh, two teams, uh, Cornell University against Johns Hopkins University. I'd never seen a, a game like this before in my life. And I watched, and on this particular day, there was a player from Cornell University who had just an absolute outstanding day. He was um, so electrifying to me watching him that I I, I, I made the declaration to myself that I was one day going to play in a game like that. I was going to do that. And when I got home, uh, I got the Sports Illustrated and uh, they had a picture of this particular player uh, in the Sports Illustrated. If you guys remember Sports Illustrated, lacrosse article would be at the very back, maybe once a year. Uh, and there would just be a small picture. And I cut this picture out and I taped it and I put it in my wallet. Uh, I actually wrote the coach at Cornell and I told him how, congratulations, that was such a great game. One day I'm going to do that myself. He wrote me back. Uh, and uh, you knew it was lacrosse coach so that there, there were spelling errors in it. <laughs> he wrote me back. I actually framed the letter and I had it in my room. So I carried this guy's picture around in my wallet. Uh, I think Stacy's probably the only other picture I ever had in my wallet. Uh, and uh, and then this letter from this uh, coach at Cornell. You could say that I I was a believer. But wh- when I was 13, 14 years old, and I said I wanted to play a national championship game, did I really know what I was talking about? I didn't. I had a long way to go if that was ever to become a reality. I was saying things I didn't even understand at the time. And what I would have needed or what I needed in life was a teacher or mentor, someone who could help make that dream come alive for me. And so Jesus, as he begins his ministry, and as John the Baptist is, is sort of fading out of the picture, and he says to his disciples, this is the one, you guys need to follow him. Two of them actually leave, and they start following Jesus. Now, before we get into the this, uh, story of, um, of the wedding, that little piece at the very end, be, that exchange between Nathaniel and Jesus, really helps us step into the, the, uh, the wedding story. Because uh, as Jesus is, is getting these followers, or as these disciples are starting to come to him, uh, they um, are um, being confronted with, um, with, with following him, uh, uh, Nathaniel, who is uh, maybe representative of Israel itself, kind of skeptical, um, I'll believe it when I see it, I'll do it when I, I know that it's real kind of a thing. Nathaniel all of a sudden, just jumps into Jesus's, onto Jesus's bandwagon after Jesus says, "I saw you under the fig tree." We don't know uh, what uh, specifically uh, that's talking about. We'll leave that for Isaac next week. Uh, but uh, Jesus connected with Nathaniel at such a point that he was all in. And Jesus, like that little eighth-, eighth grader of myself, says, "Oh, that's kind of cute. All right, You're all in, huh? Great. Okay. You have no idea what you're joining here. In fact, you're going to see things that blow your mind. Uh, I think the important thing there is, too, is, is this Nathaniel is not just a one-on-one exchange. I'm glad that you believe me. I'm glad you're all in, but I'm going to show you all things that you have no idea what's yet to come. So that when we turn to the story of, of the wedding, what can we anticipate? Something great's about to happen, right? I mean, that's how good stories work, right? Nathaniel, you're going to see heaven opened up. You're going to see the angels coming down and going up. And then there's a story, then there's a wedding at Cana. We can anticipate something great's about to happen with these guys. Again, remember, Jesus has to turn believers into disciples. How's he going to do that? And right off the bat, I can tell you that he uses signs in order to do that. These miracles that take place are signs which are pointers for these guys to believe in Jesus, and to begin to start asking questions. And I think that's the first thing that we see in our lives, that when we start asking real questions, it's really great to say, I believe Jesus, I follow Jesus, uh, I love God, all those kinds of things. Those are declarations, which are important declarations. But when we start being confronted by the life of God in our own lives, that should start us asking questions like, what's going on? Why is this happening? Where is God? Uh, how, how can something like this be happen to me? More questions come into our lives rather than answers. And I think that's the start of, of God breaking us down in order to build us up into real believers. Okay? It's one thing to see a beautiful girl and be smitten and be a believer. It's another thing to actually know that person and to live a life uh, building uh, a marriage, so to speak, with that person. So there's a process here, and Jesus uses these signs. Now, these signs are pointers for people uh, to, um, to see something uh, that otherwise they would not see. Uh, if you remember the Wizard of Oz uh, and that uh, little scene of Toto the dog when he grabs the curtain, when the, w- the Wizard of Oz is making ah, the great and powerful Oz, and then, then the dog just sort of scoots along, reveals the curtain, and lo and behold, behind the curtain is the great and powerful Oz, which you know seems like a retired, uh, retired and tired old, older gentleman uh, who's really not the great and powerful Oz. The Bible doesn't work that way. The Bible actually reveals uh, a level of humility that we do not recognize. He came to his own. His own did not recognize him. It reveals a level of of humility and elevates it to the point of people falling down and worshiping him. It works in reverse. Our expectations are not only met, they're exceeded. Uh, in, uh, in terms of uh, what a sign ought to do uh, for us in, in the Bible. Okay, so let's look at the wedding. Three things about the wedding that I want to look at. Uh, the wedding itself, give you a little bit of background, then the dialogue between Jesus and his mother, and then uh, we'll look at the, the miracle uh, itself before we uh, end up with uh, what this all might mean. Uh, there is no rejoicing save for wine. There is no rejoicing save for wine. That was a uh, um, a saying of the rabbis uh, at the time uh, of the intertestamental period when this was when this takes place. Wine was central. It's kind of like having a tailgate uh, at the uh, Ravens game. Uh, You know, there's certain elements that if they're not there, it's kind of it's not a real tailgate. Like, yeah, we went to that tailgate, but they didn't have you know they didn't have beer, they didn't have ribs, they didn't have chips, guacamole, whatever it is that they need. Uh, without those elements, there's really nothing here. That's essentially what they're saying. Now, in, in, that, in that time in the ancient world, there wasn't a whole lot of, of stuff that was available to you, but wine was central. It was really uh, a part of the, of the party, but it was symbolic for Israel as well. It symbolized sort of the fruits of God's people, uh, the goodness of God's people. It would also uh, make reference to, to God himself, who when you taste, he is good. All right, so to taste God uh, and to see that He is good. Now, the wedding in the ancient world would begin probably about midweek. Uh, apparently, if a woman was a virgin, it would start on a Wednesday, and if she wasn't, it would start on a. Thir- if she was a widow, then she w- it would start on a Thursday. And what would happen is the wedding would take place after sunset. The guys, the groom and his uh, and his buddies would come uh, by torchlight down to the bride's home come and get her there would be all kinds of singing rejoicing speeches etc etc and then the party would proceed back to the bridegroom's house where there would be an elaborate feast and um, that feast might go on for a couple of days if wine was so central and the party went on for a couple of days perhaps even up to a week running out of wine at a small town wedding would be a huge embarrassment A huge embarrassment. I mean, think about it. If if you lived in a town uh, of maybe 300, 400 people, all right, a good number of those people are going to be invited to that wedding, at least enough that there will be touch points for every single family in that town. And if the people who are having the wedding actually create some kind of a social faux pas, like not having wine, everybody's going to know. You're going to be a social embarrassment, Every time there's a wedding in the town, they're going to talk about, well, I hope it wasn't, I hope it's not like the Stein's wedding. You know, they ran out of, they ran out of wine. That was, you know, three days it was great and two days it was unbearable. So every time you're just gonna be used as uh, sort of the butt end of something. It would have been a bad omen, a sense of like a, a, a bad, uh, what people would call bad luck for, for the uh, family, not only the family, but also for the young couple getting married. It's not only social embarrassment, but maybe a sign of bad luck. Uh, at, that, at that point in time. Uh, not only that, but apparently in certain cases you would be liable uh, for running out of wine. <laughs> so not only the social embarrassment of it, but then you can get a lawsuit uh, on top of it. So it was truly something that you would want to uh, avoid at all costs, that, that kind of embarrassment. And of course, putting on uh, faces is, is really important in the ancient world. Well, anyhow, at some point towards the end of the wedding, again, the the master of the ceremony says, when everyone has drunk in their fill, so we know it's probably towards the end of the wedding, they run out of wine. And Jesus's mother makes mention of this to Jesus. Now, I don't want to get too much into the dialogue of uh, this this section because I don't think that the dialogue really holds uh, the meaning of the passage itself. I also believe that when a mother and a son are talking, there's a lot going on there that you don't necessarily know, even if you're watching. You know, my, I, just in observing my own uh, wife, Stacy, with the kids, she can have very private conversations in a public atmosphere, and I might not really know what's going on there, you know? So there's a lot going on between Jesus and his mother. I believe that they're on the same page. I've read some some commentaries that want to make much of Mary and Jesus putting her in her place. It really seems very inconsistent uh, to me, not just uh, on a social basis, but by virtue of the fact that her uh, last words are, go and do what he says, do whatever he tells you, is an indication of the kind of reaction that Jesus is always looking for from people. I really believe that whatever their exchange was between the two of them, that Jesus was pressing her or goading her on to make the declaration of faith, which in fact she does make at the end. Do whatever, she, whatever he tells you. No, no, don't think about it, just, just do it. And for her to do that right in front of the disciples who Jesus is trying to bring along from believers to disciples, what a marvelous example for, for them to actually watch. I don't know if that's how it went. But I would say that more of that kind of setting is probably more consistent with Scripture in and, in and of itself. Stacy and I had a, a friend in high school. I don't know whether any of you did or not, but he used to call his mother Ruthie. Uh, and uh, for Stacy and I coming from families where if you called your mom and dad by the first name That was probably like a bar of soap or something in your mouth That was <laughs> it was not a smart thing to do It was considered very disrespectful in the uh, social climate that that we had uh, grown up with But after a while it was just it was it was the, a term of endearment between uh, My friend Chris and his and his mom it, we didn't think we didn't think a thing of it have an archaeologist dug that up 2,000 years from now, he'd say that the, the son was very disrespectful and probably got whatever he deserved. But that wouldn't have been true uh, in, in terms of the, the time uh, of, uh, that it actually was happening. All right, so the miracle itself. It's a little bit over the top, don't you think? I mean, there's probably a couple days, it's a small town wedding, and he produces about 150 gallons of wine. <laughs> That's 1,500 pounds of water. That's like 180 gallons of uh, of wine that he's produced uh, for for this wedding. It's a little much, considering uh, what's what the importance of it is. Um, but I think that the uh, we what well, we do know that the uh, reason for the miracle itself was to manifest not only his glory but so that his disciples would believe. And so there's a, there's a level of uh, manifestation going on here, I guess I would say, that becomes important and that leads to believing. And that's, that's what's really important as far as the miracle itself goes. Um, yeah, I don't have my notes, so I had a couple other things about that that I wanted to, uh, to point out to you uh, about the, uh, of the miracle itself. Well, it does, it does point uh, to Jesus having uh, utter control over uh, the things that are the elements of the earth. And I would say that that points back to the beginning of John's gospel where he said all things were made through Jesus and nothing that was made was not, did not, was not made except by him. That's <laughs> not as eloquent. But that's essentially what he's saying. So we would expect that what we're going to see in John's gospel are those kinds of things, and that's exactly what Jesus does. He turns water into wine. That's a lot more impressive than telling Nathanael that he said something under a fig tree. In other words, Jesus is showing us what he said he was going to show his disciples. You're going to see greater things than, what you, than, than my, my saying something uh, kind of tricky to you. And he, in fact, actually does do that. And it produces belief. Now, I'd like to contrast that with the uh, passage that, um, well, not contrasted so much as to support uh, with the passage from Second Chronicles that Frankie Frankie wrote, which I do apologize uh, to Frankie for making her read that. You did a great job. I don't know whether you know this or not, but there weren't a whole lot of great kings uh, in. Uh, I don't know if there were any great kings in in Israel. Were there, Bruce? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe one or two, it wasn't a handful. In Judah, there was a couple, there was uh, certainly some good kings. But all in all, you had a lot more bad kings than, than good kings. Jehoshaphat in this story was a good guy. He was a good king. Uh, and I would say that that makes all the difference in the world. Because Jehoshaphat's the kind of guy where water is transformed into wine in his life. And I'd like us to start thinking about the importance of seeing water turn to wine. If if you're a follower of Jesus, you, you should know what I'm talking about. Maybe not specifically what I'm talking about. That would be my fault. But you should have a sense of what I'm talking about. You should be used to seeing God doing things in your life that you otherwise would not expect to happen had you not relied on him. God should start to be knocking down some doors and he should be coming through for you and he should be transforming circumstances in your life as you start to trust him. If you're not seeing that, you wanna hang in there and be steadfast and faithful. But over time, as you uh, uh, do the things that you should do, which we'll talk about in a second, you should be seeing God moving in your life. Life is hard. It's very disappointing at times. Our expectations are rarely met. But God's not fazed by any of that, all right? God is always at work in your life and he will manifest himself by turning water into wine in your life. And I want you to, to, to realize that one, expect it, uh, number two. Uh, and, um, and to anticipate that, that, that that's what God uh, is up to. Jehoshaphat was a, was a, uh, was a man who uh, I'm going to give the illustration of in, from verse 7 in our story. That when the, um, I just want to back up for a second. When the uh, servants filled up the stone jars, they filled the jars up to the brim. Right? They filled them up to the brim, which meant that there was no more room for anything else. Right? The, water, the water essentially um, encompassed the entire, the entire stone jars. As a result, there was no room for anything else. Jehoshaphat was a man filled to the brim with God. So when something uh, um, really horrible, like this, this vast army came to invade his kingdom, Jehoshaphat turned to God. That was a natural response for a man who was filled to the brim, or a woman who was filled to the brim, to turn to God. I'd like you to note that Jehoshaphat had a very impressive army in and of itself, and he himself was considered a strong military leader. He actually caught the attention of the northern kingdom uh, when Ahab was king, and Ahab had a powerful uh, army uh, and was a uh, noted warrior himself. Jehoshaphat's army was so impressive that Ahab actually, "Ah, you know, it's kind of like giving attention to your little brother. You're pretty good, you know, And, and they wanted to create an alliance. So it would have been easy for Jehoshaphat just to jump in and try and fight this horde in the name of the Lord and do his own thing, but that's not what men and women who are filled to the brim do. When you're used to seeing God move in your life in small ways, when big things come, the natural response is to turn to God and ask him to change what seems to be utterly impossible and that's exactly what Jehoshaphat prays. This is an impossible circumstance. And this is a guy who's a great warrior and has a great army and he says, this is impossible. I need to hear from God. I need God to transform this situation. And God, in fact, does transform his situation. Now, let me encourage you. Isn't it typical that this kind of event would be found in the Bible? Like, that's not our lies, right? Jehoshaphat lived at a time when ceremony and, and religion and going through the, um, uh, the, the, the ceremonial rites uh, were part of worshiping, worshiping the God of Israel, you and I don't live at that time. In a sense, our time has been transferred from the water of the r- religious ceremonies of the past into the wine, the new life that Jesus offers for us. And so we have the living God inside of us. In John chapter 17, when Jesus talked about making his glory manifest, I have made, I have made my glory known to them, he says in uh, verse 22 and 23. Okay, so that they may be one as you and I are one and that I might be in them and they in us. Do you see the beauty of the moment? Do you see the power of the moment? I in they, they is one. I and they, they in me, you and I together, Father, they in us. So what was not available to Jehoshaphat is available to you and I. You and I, who go out on Main Street and do our own thing each and every day, the glory that Jesus died for that we might possess and that we might know is available for us. So, what is this glory? Ultimately, it's more than just Jesus' transforming power. The glory that is referred to in the Bible is Jesus' laying his life down for his fellow developers, uh, followers, excuse me. In in the latter passages of John, Jesus talks about that glory being a testimony to the world. Now, if the world is hostile to God, and the world hates God, and the world's not even interested in religion, it's not impressed by piety, it's not impressed uh, by the things that uh, people do, it's only impressed by success and, and power and those kinds of things, what glory could Jesus possibly want to offer the world so that they would see? I would maintain that there's one glory, one one act of glory that the world just can't get its arms wrapped around, and that is the act of self-giving love. When we give away ourselves, when we give away power, when we give away pride, when we give away success, and instead we genuinely work on behalf of other people, we sacrifice for other people to see their good, the world still scratches their head at that. That makes just no sense. There's no profit in that. Why would you do that? And yet the world will not condemn that. It just simply scratches its head. Maybe some cynics will laugh at it. But for the most part, that is the gospel message that is the hope of the world. The world can still see that, identify, identify with it. And if it receives it, there is hope for all who do. But for those who reject it, it's really it is the last hope. Okay. Uh, one final point I'd like to make: <clears throat> we just came out of Christmas time, um, so we have this great nosebleed uh, verses here in the beginning of John's gospel. He in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God was uh, with God, and the Word was God. Nothing was made that was not made by Him. Blah blah, uh, not blah blah blah, <laughs> <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> It's pretty high stuff, pretty lofty stuff that you and I are given advantage to at the very beginning of the gospel. You and I have what the disciples don't have at this point. We got a nosebleed understanding of of who in fact Jesus is. Isn't it interesting that this king of glory comes in such obscurity? We just went through a little town of Bethlehem uh, the last couple weeks. When the king of glory steps off his throne and comes to earth, he comes in obscurity. Only a group of shepherds recognize uh, what's going on here uh, on that silent night, as as we say? He grew up in a peasant family in an obscure little village, Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? You know, um, his parents were poor; he was poor, uh, kind of a thing. In this wedding, actually, uh, if uh, his disciples, in a sense, represent Israel, John says, you know, I came to uh, testify to Jesus, John the Baptist, I came to testify to Jesus uh, so that Israel might know. And if these disciples, in a sense, represent Israel, at this wedding, Jesus transforms 150 gallons of water into wine, and only about four or five of his disciples know, well, only about four or five uh, disciples are there, Uh, and know what is going on. You have his mother and the servants, and that's it. Maybe a dozen people know what's going on. The rest of the people have no idea what just happened. And they are the beneficiaries of the goodness and of the grace of God, and they even take credit for it. (laughs) the bridegroom, you know, the master of the feast says, this is unbelievable. I can't believe you've given this wine. He goes, "Uh, well, you know, know, I got good taste in wine. I don't know. He has no idea what's happened, but he's not going to disavow it. If God is so obscure, all right, if God is so obscure, doesn't that make you a little uneasy? That you might be missing him more often than not in your life and in my life? God's always at work. He, he, he's, the, he's the light of the world. He, he gives us life. He's the author of life. He holds all things together. I mean, you could go on and on if you draw start drawing out New, New Testament passages about the mightiness of God. And yet he is so quiet, so unassuming, and so humble. Good heavens, it would be so easy to miss him when he is, when he is uh, acting. Do you see how important it is that you fill yourself up? That you fill yourself up with God so that you can see when he makes himself known. How many of you, when, when you know that God has acted in your life, you really can't even tell people what just happened in your life? Because it's too hard to explain. You think about, well, you know, I, 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 never mind. <laughs> I, just know he knew, I just know he did something. And then if you do tell a group of people, particularly people that aren't believers, they're like, well, that's kind of... Whatever, you know? But that's how God works. We have to be reading our Bibles. It's the playbook. It's how God speaks to us, all right? We have to be in fellowship with one another. We have to be a church. Even if we can't stand each other, we gotta be here. And I, thankfully, that's not, not the case with our, with our church. But we have to be in fellowship with one another. We have to love each other. We have to care for each other. We have to take care of one another. We have to worship God. That's how Jehoshaphat won the battle. When they started worshiping God, immediately God sends confusion into the camp and things begin to change. We need to be praying people, okay? We need to be doing these little things. 150 gallons, 180 buckets of water. How long do you think that took for those servants to fill that? And when they were out of wine, Jesus says, go go get water and put it in the jars. What sense does that make? It makes no sense at all. And it must have taken hours to go out to the well, bring back water, and fill up these jars. It takes time for this to develop. But brothers and sisters, we need to be about filling ourselves to the brim so that when God is on the move, we're ready to receive what he has, and we are genuine believers. And that's how God turns us from believers into disciples and mature followers of Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, let's pray. Well, Father, we truly are humbled by uh, your goodness and your grace. And it really is uh, terrifying that you move in such magnificent and marvelous ways and how much we have missed you in our own lives. Lord, we repent. Repentance really is the beginning. I forgot to mention that in the sermon, but we do need to repent. We need to stop doing things that are dysfunctional in our lives, we need to drive sin out of our lives. But just doing good acts is not good enough. We need to fill our souls up with your Holy Spirit. So prepare a place for your Holy Spirit. Knock down the walls that need to be knocked down and build up what needs to be built up that you might be glorified in all things. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.